Welcome to Medication Talk, the official podcast of TRC Healthcare, home of Pharmacist Letter, Prescriber's Letter, RX Advanced, and the most trusted clinical resources. On today's episode, we'll be listening in as our expert panel discusses considerations with managing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, including risk factors, screening, and treatment options. Our guest today is Dr. Kenneth Cousy from the University of Florida. You'll also hear practical advice from panelists on TRC's editorial advisory board, Dr. Anthony Donato from the Reading Health System, Dr. Douglas Powell from the University of Washington School of Medicine, and Dr. Craig Williams from the Oregon Health and Science University. This podcast is an extract from TRC's Emerging Recommendations panel webinar. Each month, experts and frontline providers discuss current medication therapy topics and practical recommendations to include in TRC's letter articles. The full webinar originally aired on June 16, 2022. And now... The CE Information. Pharmacist Letter offers CE credit for this podcast. Please log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. For the purposes of disclosure, Dr. Kusi reports relevant financial relationships by receiving grants or research support or being a consultant for Ecosins, Inventiva, Nordic Pharma, Novo Nordisk, Poxil, Zytus, Ionis, Janssen, Genetech, Gilead, Madrigal, Merck, Pfizer, and Turns Pharmaceuticals. The other speakers have nothing to disclose. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Now let's join TRC editor, Dr. Lori Dickerson, and start our discussion. And we're discussing this topic now because you'll get questions about how to manage patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease due to new guidelines. And Ken, we appreciate you joining us to discuss this important topic. And to get us started, I was hoping that you could briefly comment on uh, why the new American Association of Clinical Endocrinology guidelines specifically call out the management of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in primary care, even in the guideline title. So it seems like we're driving that home to primary care. Yeah, you're right, Laurie. Thank you for having me. Well, this has been a long effort uh, in trying to um, affect the prevalence of uh, cirrhosis in high-risk people uh, before they, it's too late. So you should know that now, uh, that it, very soon, the number one cause of liver transplantation is NASH. Um, and the highest-risk groups have a very high prevalence of this. And there are some things, simple things you can do to prevent that. Um, so answering your question, how common it is, uh, well, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is, a, is like an umbrella term that from having just fat in the liver, triglycerides, all the way to having inflammation um, and then fibrosis. So it's a little bit confusing, but mm -hmm. it's important for pharmacies because there are two separate things. If you have fat in the liver, that's a reflection of insulin resistance. So your liver is really like your mirror of your metabolic health. That's gonna be associated with increased cardiovascular risk. And what pharmacists should do is um, work uh, even harder on reducing cardiovascular risk with statins that shouldn't be stopped um, and, and the standard traditional management of risk factors. But the second thing is treating the liver disease that will lead to cirrhosis in about three to 5% of high-risk patients. Okay, great overview, Ken. I appreciate getting us started. You know, we do actually start the article uh, off by calling it a sleeper epidemic, and I'm just wanting to confirm that you agree with that, with that term. 
Absolutely, because neither the doctors, primary cares, or endocrinologists, as an endocrinologist, I'm a little bit ashamed yet about this, but they're not doing enough to find these people and do things that, that would really have a huge impact. And okay. um, they just show up with cirrhosis at the liver clinic. That's, that's something that we want to change. And uh, of course, as you've mentioned, um, many of these patients, and we are actually updating our statistic in the article to say uh, uh, up to one in seven of these patients um, have NASH or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is of course the more aggressive form of NAFLD that can lead to fibrosis and cirrhosis and liver cancer. And so uh, just wondering if you agree with uh, sort of that range, one in seven, Ken. Yeah, yeah. So th there are there are like three diseases in one. So let me just um, help you here. So uh, if you have the, if you take the people at the highest risk, are people with type two diabetes or pre-diabetes? If you take a hundred of such patients, seventy percent have fatty liver. This accumulation of triglycerides. Now about half of those will have this inflammation, which you call steatohepatitis. That's the active disease that's promoting uh, the um, fibrosis and cirrhosis. And one in seven will have fibrosis, significant fibrosis. In other words, uh, it's like having proteinuria and diabetic nephropathy. So one in seven have a degree of fibrosis that if left alone, it may lead to cirrhosis. And that's what we're trying to identify with screening. Not so much the fat, but the risk of fibrosis. And we can do that with a couple of simple tests. I do want to get into those tests because since we last wrote about this, Ken, the FIB4 index has been recommended as a tool to identify uh, fibrosis. And so can you expound a little bit on this tool, its pros and cons, and sort of when, when you would recommend its use in, in primary care practice? Yeah. So in older guidelines, there was some emphasis on ultrasound, but it's a worthless test because now we know that seven out of 10 people with obesity and or type 2 diabetes already have fat. What we try to identify are who of those that have scarring in the liver, what we call fibrosis. So why FIB4? First, very cheap. You already have it in your um, electronic medical record. There are calculators that Epic has, so um, it's, it's there. Uh, or you go to any uh, website. The reason why FIB4 is, is adopted, not because it's very sensitive, but it's very specific. In other words, now there's good evidence that it's associated with cirrhosis, risk of even liver cancer, and increased mortality. So that's why um, learning a couple of cutoffs below 1.3, you would say that you are likely okay with some caveats, and above 2.6, you're probably in risk of cirrhosis, those are the numbers you need to remember and then order a second test. Or pharmacists could bring this to the attention of busy doctors, um, primary care doctors, mm -hmm. who uh, are going to be uh, identifying most of these people in the future. That's a great overview. And Doug, I wanted to hear from you. Is this a test that you're using your practice now? And um, when are you, when are you uh, choosing to, to check this? Yeah, this. as pointed out, we have all this information on most of our pretty much all our patients. We have these labs, so it's it's pretty easy to do, and uh, it's just a matter of sort of having it be part of the standard uh, approach to patients with with pre diabetes, diabetes, high risk patients. 
Okay, so sort of, yeah, so bringing it into the general management of those folks to just standardly uh, calculate this this index um, as, rather than, of course, because it's an asymptomatic condition, waiting for someone to present with symptoms, right? It does call for a paradigm change <clears throat> because you're not used to do it. As endocrinologists, you know, and primary care, we do a lot of things. But you can, we, you can, in Epic, for example, we, there's a calculator you can have. You can do a dot fib four, and it automatically calculates if you have the, those raw um, labs in your note. And we even develop a, a, a clinical care pathway to when to send to that liver doctor. So, mm -hmm. um, and I've also worked uh, in the VA, um, and it, it, it's, this data is easily retrievable. We just need to develop the the muscle in the same way as we did for um, measuring protein in the urine in diabetic nephropathy or organ or bone density in high-risk groups, et cetera. That's hey, Lori, this, this is the end. Yes, yes, um, The nice thing for um, uh, things like uh, kidney failure is creatinine's obvious. It comes up with a big H on the screen. Mm -hmm. For this, you can actually have normal AST, ALT, uh, but just a flip ratio and a platelet count that's nearly normal. None of it lights up and they could have cirrhosis. Um, and I think that the, the key thing is we have to actually go looking for it. I think what's been brought up here is I think we need to get into the habit of doing this or even have systems in the hospital that actually calculate this for us automatically in the background and put it in our faces because we don't otherwise look for it. Well, that's, those are excellent points. Yes, uh, those sorry, are great no, points. No, I appreciate you, you bringing that up, Andy, and you reiterating that, Ken, because I think, you know, our, my wording, our, our wording here in the article where we say consider screening is, you know, you know get into the habit of screening, you know, and be yeah, a little stronger. And, and again, to be honest, we know what the limitations of the fit for. It's not very sensitive. As, as said, there's, there are people with moderate to advanced liver disease that have values of that are below 1.3. We, we know that. But as a first test, um, that would be you know easy to get away from the cost effectiveness debate. Um, we want to use it to begin catching at least at eighty percent uh, that are at risk. So anybody who's the above one point three probably needs to get a second test or see a hepatologist. Got so it. we know it's a bad test. We know there are better ones down the pipeline. We just want to develop the muscle for screening at this point. And Lori, can I ask a quick question on yeah. this topic of screening? The, I've always presumed that the insulin resistance plays some role in this and the hyperinsulinemia, but Kenneth might have mentioned this. How often are non-diabetics getting screened and, and positive for this? Well, I, I unfortunately, not very often. So the big three groups at, at risk are people with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, um, people who have obesity and the metabolic syndrome, and the third are those with cetosis on any imaging and um, ALT above 30, not 40. Right. Um, so it's not being done. So the question is, are we going to screen the entire population of the United States? And I think that that's, we need to get, have more data for that. My, our recommendation, let's start with the highest risk group, which is clearly people with diabetes or, or pre-diabetes. Very good point. So I want to move us along to talk about treatment um, because we do have lots to say here. And, you know, we do make the point, Ken, that the tough part is that there's not good evidence that meds decrease the risk of cirrhosis, liver transplant, or death. And um, I think that, you know, the evidence is evolving to answer those questions. Uh, but I just want to be sure that you agree with that statement and, and that this is, a, you know, a treatment in evolution. Correct. So it's going to take us 20 years, given the natural history of cirrhosis. Um, 
but we have drugs that can um, reverse the steatohepatitis and have some effect on fibrosis. Uh, and I think that that's what the guidelines have ad adopted as a surrogate until we have this long-term data. Excellent. Okay, well, let's uh, jump into management. And we do make recommendations about weight loss as the most important treatment. And a loss of over 5% reduces liver fat and over 10% can reverse fibrosis. And so again, Ken, checking to see if uh, you would agree with that statement as, um, as having that sort of impact. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's an easy to remember with a lot of caveats that we don't have time for. If you just reduce saturated fats without reducing weight, there's going to be some improvement. Adopt the Mediterranean diet, things get better without that. And these numbers are not magic numbers. There's a lot of um, noise about these uh, numbers and variability. But in general, the greater weight loss uh, by any means, uh, lifestyle changes and exercise, bariatric surgery, medications that induce weight loss, there is improvement with the greater, it's harder to reverse fibrosis. Um, easier for the inflammation, the, the steatohepatitis. And Andy, you brought up the good point in your earlier review of the article about uh, advising avoiding alcohol and including that in in the uh, in the article. And um, so we did include that and just how that can increase the risk and progression of liver damage. So appreciate you bringing bringing that up. And I guess Ken, I, I'm assuming you would agree with that statement. <laughs> Uh, yes, for the most part. I have to say that this is a point of great debate in the liver field. Um, if you have early, if you don't have fibrosis, you have early stages. I mean, um, using this, you know, with prudence, uh, a glass of wine or, or, one, or a beer can be tolerated. As you advance to have more advanced fibrosis stages, um, three, four, or of course, cirrhosis, you want to avoid it. But, but uh, you can drink with moderation in the early stages. Gotcha. Okay. And of course, uh, from a primary care standpoint, we, we've already mentioned the importance of optimizing meds for dyslipidemia, diabetes, hypertension, and tamping down on that insulin resistance and, uh, and weight loss. And so, Doug, just uh, to hear from you and your practice, these are things that you're working on in terms of uh, once you've identified these folks with um, NAFLD. Would you agree? Yeah. And, and I think when you, when you, when you, when you find it, I think it's a huge motivator for, for lifestyle change. I think so often we talk about our patients and I think when we, we have a end organ problem and, and we sort of say, you know, now is the time I found it really, really positive for my patients and adopting a real, real attempt to lose weight and really putting all their energy into it. So I, I think it gets back to why it's so important to screen for this and, and to, because you can get the lifestyle changes bought in that we're going to help all the other diseases too that these patients have. Mm -hmm. Good points. And, you know, we have several questions coming in about statins and their safety in folks with fatty liver disease. This is a common question that we get because we, you know, typically think about, uh, you know, liver function test monitoring with statins. So can we make the point um, to keep in mind that statins are safe in NAFLD and even in NASH? Uh, can you comment on, on, on this statement and if you agree? Yeah, so the liver society say that they're safe and every other society in the world. Um, again, you need to be monitoring the patient as you would do. Uh, we, we follow prospectively a group of 100 people with biopsy-proven NASH and fibrosis, and it was safe. We only had to stop it in one person that later admitted to alcohol, excessive alcohol intake. And because they have higher cardiovascular risk is that you don't want to 
um, stop them. So um, I would say for the most part, uh, if the liver enzymes are within two and a half or threefold above normal, you start low and slow and monitor it. Um, and, and they're all overall safe. And remember, you don't want to take them from people with increased cardiovascular risk because cardiovascular disease is the number one killer in people who have NASH and fibrosis. Of course, until you get to the late stages of liver right, disease. Right, right. And just to clarify, Ken, we're using statins in this situation to reduce cardiovascular disease risk. Um, are, is, there, is there an impact of statins on uh, progression to NASH from an FLD? Great question. So statins have a number of favorable biological effects on hepatocytes, but there are a number of small short-term um, randomized controlled trials that have not shown any major effect on the inflammation or fibrosis. So the use would be to treat cardiovascular disease primarily. Got it. Okay, so let's actually talk about some of the treatments then. We do recommend pioglitazone or injectable subeglutide first line. And um, Ken, I'm just checking. These are your sort of go-to agents, and then we'll tease through the two and when you might choose one or the other. But do you agree in general with the statement? Yes. So number one, there's no FDA-approved medication. So we're using these agents with a dual purpose, either to treat diabetes and NASH or treat obesity and NASH in the case of Wigovi. And um, they have the best evidence. Of course, uh, none of these studies have been treated for more than um, two or three years. So uh, it's, 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 it's good evidence from those randomized controlled trials, but we, de we do need long-term trials which are underway now. And Doug, I'm curious in your practice, is this something that you would be, you know, starting or would they be going to GI and hepatology to start pioglitazone or semeglutide and then coming back to you? Uh, how, how does that work in your practice? Yeah, I feel very comfortable treating it. I, I just, I, you know, the I have not been a real super big fan of pioglitazone in general, um, and some of the some of the other issues that occur, especially edema with it in my patients. So I've, you know, our, the liver folks sometimes use it. Uh, the the other medication I think has a lot more promise mm -hmm. to me as far as selling it to the patient and keeping them on it. So yes, mm -hmm. I feel comfortable doing it, and our certainly our liver folks feel very comfortable. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Doug, because we do have questions coming up uh, about this, and we did get some questions on peer review about this. You know, it's so we understand, you know, understand pioglitazone's oral. It's you know low cost. Those seem like benefits, but you know, edema and weight gain are problems with and pioglitazone, and then we're of course trying to have these patients lose weight. So uh, it seems a little counterintuitive. So Ken, um, just wondering if you can comment on that. Absolutely. That's a great point, Lori. So to understand what we are treating in NASH, we are treating insulin resistance in the adipose tissue. So you're, when you are obese, and even when you're overweight but have insulin resistance, uh, which is also genetic and acquired uh, component to it, what's happening is your adipose tissue is releasing fatty acids to your liver around the clock. It's like an infusion of toxic lipids to your liver. There are two ways you can reverse that. A, reduce the mass of adipose tissue. So if you lose weight, you're, you have to lose a significant amount of weight for your adipose tissue to be healthy again. Pioglitazone takes the other route, targets adipose tissue, 
and makes it work like that the adipose tissue of a lean person retaining fat in the right place. So that is why pioglitazone um, can uh, not only treat diabetes and NASH, but reduces cardiovascular disease. And most recently, the IRIS study showed that in about 3,000 people where it reduced cardiovascular disease, stroke, MIs, et cetera. So mm. how do we avoid the weight gain and how much weight gain do you get? Well, it is dose dependent. So if you use 15 milligrams, the weight gain in about nine different studies is about 1%. And the rate of edema is, is very low, I would say two or 3%. So it can be used safely. Now the efficacy in NASH has not been shown yet with 15 milligrams, but it does improve lipids and lowers glucose. The 30 milligrams was shown in a large randomized trial called PIVANS, and that did improve NASH in um, the vast, in about 50% of the people. Um, so again, the weight gain with 30 milligrams can be three or 4%, but it can be miti mitigated if you do lifestyle or add a GLP-1. So, mm -hmm. and it's much cheaper. Like I yeah. worked, um, you know, Pio costs $5 for, per month and semaglutide costs, we never know how much it costs, but it's eight, <laughs> nine or a thousand dollars. Up to a thousand dollars, yes, for sure. I got a patient who called me, hey, you gave me a medication, costs $800, doctor, give me something real. Right, right, so right. So several hundred people with pioglitazone uh, compared to a GLP-1. Mm -hmm, so great points, and certainly uh, payer coverage is going to be a big part of this. Um, and so uh, let's actually talk about semaglutide, injectable semaglutide. And, you know, we're, uh, that is uh, under the brand name Ozempic, or Wagovi is the higher dose, of course, it's for obesity. And uh, we're going to, we recommend titrating those towards the max doses for the most benefit. Um, and, uh, but of course the cost is, uh, we say over $900 or up to a thousand dollars. And we have, of course, side effects with these agents, like the GI side effects, we can have some pancreatitis also. And, um, so actually Doug, I was curious, are you having, uh, issues with getting the semaglutide approved for your patients, uh, or is just the documentation of, uh, fibrosis enough to, uh, to help get that through that hurdle? It depends which it depends which uh, insurance company. I've been able to get it in some people, but sometimes it's a real battle. Mm -hmm. Ken, do you have any tricks yeah. there yeah. to help? Yeah, us definitely. So if you say if you say the patient has NASH or fibrosis, you're not going to get it approved, unfortunately, mm. uh, because it doesn't have an indication for that. So a sempic would be now can be pushed up to two milligrams. You start at 0.25, bump it up to 0.5, etc. Um, for diabetes, but typically they're going to ask you that they failed some other uh, oral agent before. Mm. Wegovi, um titrates again and the same way initially, then 1.7 up to 2.4. That dose is equivalent to the dose of the trial published in NASH, um, that we published in NASH last year in the New England. So it, that will have to go through the hurdles of managing obesity, which is even worse than for a sempic. So okay. easier to get a sempic than with Govi. Um, but but again, um, it, it is worth the effort. The trial. Got it. Okay, so to clarify yeah. on this topic, so we, we it is not easy to get GLP one still, but often you can get the one that that insurer prefers. But yes. oh, so we mean to call out some glue. You read my mind, Craig. I just lost your audio for a second I there, but I think two random names because yes. we should be pushing for that over other. GLP. Yes. 
Yes, we we do yeah. uh, we do recommend okay. one of these agents um, uh, because there's not much evidence with the others. And so, Ken, would you agree with that? Yes. So there are small trials with exenatide and a handful of people, an uncontrolled study with dutaglutide looking at a reduction in fat, but no biopsy. Lidaglutide had a trial called Lean, uh, uh, published in The Lancet, several years, only 50 people, some histological benefit. Uh, with semaglutide last year in the New England, the first also Dr. Newsom uh, showed in um, over 72 weeks to have improvement on steatopatitis. Didn't get to significance in terms of fibrosis, but decreased the progression of fibrosis. So that's why semaglutide has been um, the drug with the greatest evidence, but you should know that, uh, well, tirsepatide that has been approved for diabetes, um, it has a NASH trial that is under underway, okay. uh, phase two trial. So we'll hear more about the other agents in the near future. But okay, for now, semaglutide has the evidence. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. We're almost out of time, but I do want to clarify one point. Um, we are talking about using these drugs, uh, pioglitazone and semaglutide, uh, to reduce liver fat, slow fibrosis progression, uh, regardless of whether or not the patient has type 2 diabetes. So if they well, did or no. didn't, is that, what is your thought there? Well, studies have shown that people without diabetes respond to pioglitazone too, but you cannot prescribe these drugs for NASH. They're not FDA approved for right. NASH. So when you have somebody with diabetes and NASH, you're going to prescribe uh, for the diabetes uh, with that purpose of improving their NASH. And if they don't have diabetes, um, you can prescribe pioglitazone, but you can prescribe um, Wegovy that has an indication for obesity. I see. Gotcha. So, so I, I, hopefully that's that's clear for that's, the audience. Yes, very good, very good. Uh, we're almost out of time. I want to um, uh, just briefly ask about vitamin E and milk thistle. We are getting lots of questions in about uh, supplements, and um, we do make the recommendation to not jump to either of these. Uh, you know, lack of evidence as well as. Um, uh, or, or I guess spotty evidence, and then also risks associated with vitamin E um, in cardiovascular patients. So just uh, briefly, Ken, what are your thoughts on supplements here? In a nutshell, Piven study showed vitamin E improves steatopatitis, but not fibrosis. Again, as you say, some now suggest not only increased cardiovascular disease, but uh, increased risk of prostate cancer. We did a trial combining uh, with pyre vitamin E and another arm vitamin E alone with some benefit, but again, in a population with increased cardiovascular risk, everybody's a little bit nervous. Mm -hmm. And answering no other things have shown to work in NASH so far. There are many agents, um, like milk thistle has not shown to work. Everything has been thrown at patients with NASH, most of them unsuccessfully. Great points, Ken. I appreciate all of that. And I guess just to close out, Doug, anything further that you would like to add in terms of managing these folks in your patient population? I think just to reiterate that that I think the most important thing is when these things when these patients come to your attention, that you know, using that as a, a time to really change their lifestyle. Because as pointed out, a lot of the therapies are 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 hard to get and aren't aren't particularly strong, but you know, the weight loss and lifestyle change probably has as good or better than anything else. We hope you enjoyed and gained practical insights from listening into this discussion. Now that you've listened, you can receive CE credit from Pharmacist Letter. Just log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. 
If you're not yet a Pharmacist Letter subscriber, find out more about our product offerings at trchealthcare.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe, rate, and review this show in your favorite podcast app. It helps spread the word about our show and is a great way for you to let us know how we're doing. You can also reach out to provide feedback or make suggestions by emailing us at contactus at trchealthcare.com. Thanks for listening to Medication Talk.